Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Kids playing in Piedmont Park probably aren't aware that the structures they're climbing are a famous work of art designed by Isamo Noguchi. That would have further pleased the sculptor, whose focus was on the children at play. We'll hear about the Noguchi playscapes from Dakin Hart, the senior curator of the Isamu Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum in New York City. Plus, WABE music contributor H. Johnson tells us about trombonist Melba Liston in our series H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Nostalgic depictions of America in the 1950s and 60s often feature the iconic look of classic cars with extravagant tail fins, chrome plating, and white wall tires. The automobile went through a period of decadent design that celebrated the car as an object of art beyond a means of transportation. The new exhibition, Fabulous Fins, at the Savoy Automobile Museum in Cartersville, features stunning examples from the 50s and 60s. The show is on view through April 2nd. Joining me now via Zoom is the Savoy Museum's Director of Curatorial Services, Bruce Patton. Welcome to City Lights. Well, hello. Thank you for uh, allowing me to join you, Lois. I really appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you. The Savoy Automobile Museum opened almost exactly a year ago in Cartersville. Correct. Yeah, so we're excited. One whole year down. For Atlantans who may not have heard, there's now a world-class auto museum just outside this city. What can you tell us about the museum and the experience it offers visitors? So the Savoy Automobile Museum, it's 65,000 square feet. 
It was built from scratch. So yeah, we actually have 37 acres of very groomed grounds. We actually put in special turf, just like uh, you would have on a golf course. So we envision having large car shows this summer where you can actually park your cars on the lawn there at the Savoy. Oh my. Yeah. So we also have a, a storage facility here that's 35,000 square feet that is just behind the museum. And if you, you come in as you drive into the museum, what you'll notice is you'll see a sculpture. And that sculpture, which is named the Spirit of Speed, she is 40 feet long, nine feet high, eight feet wide, made out of stainless steel. And uh, she sits up on a pedestal that's about 10 feet up in the air. So it reminds you of those uh, mascots that you would have on the automobiles back in the day. Who created that sculpture? Yeah, that was Linda Bruckner. She's out of Spain, and we commissioned her to do this uh, sculpture to give us, you know, our own mascot. So she, she looked through all the different mascots and hood ornaments, you know, back in the day, and then came up with her own design for what she would see that the Savoy Automobile Museum would be. The museum is named after the line of classic cars, Plymouth Savoy. Yes. What was it about those cars or that model that deserved such tribute? (laughs) Yeah, so it was a very interesting story. So we were trying to come up with a name for the museum. And uh, as you know, we were clearing the land, so there's 37 acres. And as we were clearing the land, we found one car. It was just this one car. There weren't any other parts. There's just one car. And it happened to be a 1954 Plymouth Savoy. And we said, that must be an omen. <laughs> you know, we, we, we need to name the museum the Savoy Automobile Museum. And so what, the interesting thing, what we did, I mean, it was, it was pretty, it, it's very rusted out and had a tree growing up through the trunk and a lot of vines. But uh, oh we actually goodness, saved a tree yeah, growing th- it did. Wait, through the car it, trunk, not the tree it trunk. Did. No, 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 the, the tree, the, the trunk of the tree was growing <laughs> through the, the actual trunk of the car. So, yeah. So what we did was we, we preserved it. You know, we left it in its normal state. You know, it's kind of that very rusted, you know, it's missing some parts, a lot of, a lot of parts. But, uh, but we kept it in that state. And then as soon as we finished the museum, we then put it back on site here. And so as you park your car and you see this beautiful all glass and aluminum building, which looks very, kind of looks very European. As you start to walk up to the museum, you see this rusted out <laughs> car that's sitting there, you know, by the parking lot. And, you know, it's the very first car you see and you think, oh my goodness, you know, what am I getting myself into? But, <laughs> but, but then you notice that we have a sign there that explains, you know, that this is our namesake, you know, so that people know what it is. So I think that's wonderful, Bruce. We actually did plant a new tree there in the trunk of the car. So, you know, to, to honor its tradition of when we found it. So, well, <laughs> Fabulous Fins celebrates the style of auto design incorporating tail fins, a trend that was popular during the 1950s and 60s. I read that 
they might have been inspired by features on aircraft. How and why were tail fins introduced in cars? Yeah, it's it's a kind of an interesting story. Uh, everybody knows, uh, well, a lot of people know Harley Earl, and uh, they think of Harley Earl when they think of uh, the tail fins, uh, because Harley Earl was the uh, chief designer for General Motors at the time. But uh, he had a gentleman named Frank Hershey, and Frank Hershey was the chief of special car design there at General Motors. And at one time, Frank Hershey and Harley Earl, and I believe Bill Mitchell, they went to an Air Force base, Selfridge Air Force Base, and they noticed the, the P, I think it was P-38 fighter plane there. And Frank always kept that in the back of his mind. What he liked was that kind of twin tail fins that was on that P-38. And he said, at some point, he, he wanted to use that design. And so when uh, Harley Earl had made Frank Hershey that chief of special car design, Frank took it upon himself to come up for the 1948 Cadillac. So this started in actually 1948. Cadillac came up with that. It was very small at the time. It was like a little bump, you know, there on the, on the two rear tails, on the fenders there in the rear. So Frank came up with this design and showed it to Harley, and Harley approved it, and uh, GM management also approved it. And then it kind of took off from there. And one of the interesting things that we were able to do with this, this fabulous Fins exhibit is we have a 1950, which is the same as the 1948, if you look at the, the fin itself, but we have a, a inline, we have a 1950, a 1958, a 1959, which was probably the top of the line for tail fins on size and, and that for GM, and 1960 Cadillacs. We have these four Cadillacs that are all back-to-back, and you can see the design change through the years, and, and it changes every year. There's, it's different between 58, 59, and 60. So like you said back then, it, it was very, you know, uh, what they were trying to get is people to buy a new vehicle every year. Mm. Now, tail fins look cool, very <laughs> cool. Yeah. This is at the heart of your exhibition. But I understand manufacturers offered engineering-related justifications for their placement, saying they might be there for stability or for <laughs> reducing drag. Were those statements valid from an engineering perspective, or was it really just about selling cool-looking cars? It was much more about selling cool-looking cars, because if you look at them, you know, uh, people kept increasing them in size until it got to a point where it got so big that people go, okay, I think we've taken it far enough. Now we may need to start to reduce it. But uh, these cars were more to be seen, you know, as you're driving around. So you, you, they were really the higher end vehicles. So if you look at them, like the Cadillacs and some of the Packards and things that another one that we have here would be like the Lincoln Premier, you know, so these are, you know, kind of higher end cars. You did have them on some of the other, obviously the one that everybody knows is the 57 Chevy. Of course, we have one of those in our collection here, but we also have a Plymouth Sport Fury 
1959, and those had pretty pretty big fins on them too. So, if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Bruce Patton of the Savoy Automobile Museum in Cartersville. This era of classic automobile seems distinctly American. Exactly. Yeah. How did the car symbolize America's sense of exceptionalism during those years? Yeah. Yeah. As most of your audience know, you know, this was kind of the end uh, right after the war, you know, World War II, and people were coming back. And uh, as you know, during the war, uh, there weren't many cars being sold, you know, obviously due to the steel that was needed for the uh, World War II. And so after the end of the war, cars started becoming one of those necessary things because your cars were either old and need to be replaced, but also the highways were being built at that time. And so now people were on the move, right? So you had this whole transportation and it came to the point where you'd have one car, but then what transpired was that you'd have the one person who was going to work in the car, but you still needed another car. So then the whole marketing took off where now you needed two cars, you know? So all of a sudden the rise of cars just became enormous, which is why, you know, during that time in the fifties, the GM, I can't remember, I think they were close to 50% of the whole market share for General Motors. But, you know, like you said, the whole American exceptionalism was trying to outdo each other on their cars. And uh, if you remember, there's a time when everybody wore or suits and they they looked uh you know they like to dress you know and the interesting thing too is the designers themselves they were pretty uh out there too so there's people like bill mitchell who was in charge of design after harley earl and he was very flamboyant in his dress and even harley earl was another one who was dressed very very nicely and so they they liked those those finer things and they kind of put that into their car designs too. Yeah, and that was their self-expression. Exactly. I'm thinking about something else in the 1950s, post-war optimism, American exceptionalism. How did the 1950s space race and sci-fi influence car design and car car culture of the time right yeah you'll you'll notice in the design a lot of those especially the the 50s concept cars and then some of the cars that were produced they were very kind of rocket shaped you know there was the the old chrysler turbine car that was produced and uh if you look on the back of the like the 59 cadillac you know, it's kind of like very, very rockety uh, as far as the uh, the tail fin, the tail lights on there. And so a lot of that design got put into the cars because, you know, that was a good way to sell the cars is, like you said, as we are going into this kind of space race and uh, looking into the future, that's what people really thought that, you know, maybe we'll have flying cars here's in the in the near future 
you know, and so you see that design in a lot of those cars of that era. Just like the Jetsons. Exactly. Oh, I loved the Jetsons. So you mentioned the 1959 Eldorado and those extravagant wings. It's hard to imagine parallel parking one of those (laughs) cars. I, I was wondering, have you ever driven one of these cars, Bruce? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yes, I have. So we have a 1960 uh, Eldorado Brits that we have here at the museum that that we've driven around. I mean, I uh, can't remember. I think it's around 19 feet long. Oh my um, so, goodness! Right. Yeah. So it's a just a, a two door convertible Cadillac and still 19 feet long. So with just the two doors, and so it's just. It's incredible. You know, one of the things I'd like to mention, too, is one of the cars that we have, we, well, we have some special cars here, but one of them is we have a 1958 Cadillac Eldorado Brits. It's called a raindrop. And she may ask, well, what, what's a raindrop? So the GM came up with this concept that they made five of these concept cars where they had a kind of rain sensor on the car. And once it detected the rain, it would actually pop up your top put the top up and roll the windows up for you. And that was back in 1958. So they never sold any to the public, but we do have one on loan from the Richard Driehaus collection out of Chicago uh, that somehow they were able to acquire and they loaned it to us as part of part of this exhibit. So amazing. Yeah. It's been said that cars with flashy tail fin design were an example of planned obsolescence in the auto industry, meaning that the car styles would be updated frequently with new models rolling out in quick succession, making them more like collectible novelties. Do you think that contributed to the decline of the tailfin cars. I guess it it may have just the the, the what happened is you kind of had all this uh, wanting of the new styles until you got saturated. I believe, you know, and then once you got saturated, where you already had two cars, yeah, you know, then it became difficult for people to continue to keep buying new cars because I mean the cars did did last, but I think that saturation point is after you got the two cars, that kind of started to to wean a little bit on the need to continue to keep upgrading hmm. the cars. But uh, uh, so I think that was that was more part of it. It was a part of the excitement of the fall season. I remember as a little girl, you know, there was a big deal in the fall. You'd get new television series. And often my parents would get Life magazine. I remember there would be a new car issue. You'd see the new models. And it really was artful. I mean, this was design at its highest. But there's something also very temporary and wasteful about it. I mean, now, you know, we, we have cars that were glad last a dozen years. That was unthinkable then. Right. Yeah. And 
I guess another thing to, to think about too was all the auto shows. And if you remember the, the auto shows and when they'd have the world fairs, yeah, th- those would be times when the auto companies would come out and they'd have huge, very glamorous, big shows, you know, and they'd try these wild concepts. And that was in that kind of time frame, you know, basically from the 30s through the 50s, 60s kind of time frame. And then it did start to kind of wane down a little bit. And, you know, you didn't quite get as many concepts and cars or as crazy of concept cars, I'll say, you know, different. Because, you know, now people want to see those concept cars from the 50s, you know, and and you don't see them really saying, oh, I don't want to see that concept car from the 80s, you know, or 90s, <laughs> right? So so they want to see those ones that look like the space cars or the, you know, rocket ships or, or that, you know, that were produced then during the 50s. So those are ones that are very, very desirable, you know, for people to see. So Bruce, would you like to see a comeback of this style of car design? Well, you know, it's interesting when we were going over the cars and uh, just looking through, you know, all the features and all the chrome uh, that was on it, you know, we were imagining how much would this cost to produce today, you know, and, you know, would manufacturers even do it? I mean, I'd love to see these kind of cars. These are, they're just beautiful. They're works of art, really. And and when people come and they see them in person and they see all the details that, that they put into them, it's, it's just amazing. So sure, uh, could we afford them? Yeah, you know, that, it'd be challenging for the average person to be able to afford one of these, you know, that's, that's produced nowadays. Well, thinking within scale for the 21st century, though, nationwide transition to electric cars may be in its beginning stages. What if that classic tailfin look came back to sweeten the deal? Do you think drivers would go for it? Uh, yeah, it could be. I mean, there's a, there's a, there are companies now that are taking vintage cars and installing EV systems. So you'll see them there's a one that does it for a lot of Porsches. There's some for Volkswagens and some other vintage cars. There's actually kind of aftermarket companies that are actually doing that now so that people can still have that look. And, you know, they're planning on the future. So, so you, you do see that out there. Hmm. Bruce Patton, this has been so much fun. Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. That was Bruce Patton, Director of Curatorial Services at the Savoy Automobile Museum in Cartersville. The exhibition Fabulous Fins is on view through April 2nd. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a look at Piedmont Park's Playscapes, a world-renowned work of art by master sculptor Isumu Noguchi. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In the heart of Atlanta's Piedmont Park, a world-renowned work of art by a master sculptor hides in plain sight. A collection of interactive sculptures called Playscapes by Isamu Naguchi. Playscapes occupies a dual role, a priceless 20th century piece of modern art and as a playground for children. Joining me now via Zoom to tell us more about this Atlanta treasure is Dakin Hart, senior curator of the Isamu Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum in New York City. Dakin Hart, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Please tell us about the history of this sculpture and how it was created. Well, the most interesting thing about it is that it's Noguchi's only playground in the United States. It's the only one that he was able to execute in his lifetime. But the time that it was created in the mid to, to late 70s, Noguchi had been trying for 40 years to get a playground built in New York City, which is where he lived, and had run into all sorts of barriers in in trying to do that. So he was extremely pleased and proud uh, to finally come up with the right combination of circumstances to get a playground built. So he'd been thinking about play for a long time, from the early 30s on, It had been kind of central to the way that he conceptualized sculpture. You know, one of the things that's important about Noguchi is to realize that he didn't see playground and priceless work of art as incompatible concepts. He was really interested in making sculpture that played a, a role in civic life. He said sculpture can be a vital part of our everyday lives if pushed into communal usefulness. And he couldn't think of a better way to push into communal usefulness than to make something that that kids could interact with. Would you please describe the appearance of Playscapes? For sure. So that part of Piedmont Park is lovely. It's not far from the road. And so he did a little bit of contouring of the land around it. He built a retaining wall. So he tried to give it a little bit of shape. He tried to create a little bit more of the feel of a, a glen kind of tucked away in a forest. Then he created a kind of a, basically a circle 
and then placed various pieces of playground equipment in that circle. It probably, to most of the people who go through it and use it, it won't look that much different from a typical playground. And now, of course, because in, in Noguchi's wake and just the sort of the nature of what's happened with the development of playground equipment, now your everyday, ordinary neighborhood playground may be one that has extraordinarily complicated very well-engineered and very interestingly shaped playground equipment, which has made Noguchi's kind of subtler and subtler. But it has a number of, of things that everyone will recognize. It has a swing. It has a couple of slides in different configurations, a spiral slide and a triple slide. It has a wonderful, just very simple bump, which is a, a convex surface that is, is kind of like the archetypal small mountain in a sand pit. And then some jungle gym, monkey bar kind of things. They don't look totally conventional. He's made them in a particular way. But again, it, it, is, it will look a little bit like a normal playground, just kind of highly attuned. And it has some elements that are, again, they, they don't look as revolutionary as they did in the 70s or when he first started proposing these things in the 30s. But in, in part, that's because he's had such an impact on playground design. Wow. Some have described Playscapes and other works by Noguchi in the category of brutalism or brutalist architecture. I'm curious to know if you think that's accurate and if you could tell us what brutalism is. Wow, that's a big, big question and very loaded subject because the, the people who coined the term obviously had a point of view on a particular type of mid-century architecture using exposed concrete, very simple shapes, ended up creating some buildings that some people feel are you know, not very user-friendly, uh, not very human-friendly. But I don't think it is accurately applied at all to Noguchi in its, its sort of demeaning sense there are some some similarities. And of course, he knew a lot of those architects and he worked with some architects who produced designs that people have labeled brutalist. But there's nothing inherently unfriendly about exposed concrete or painted concrete. In fact, almost all of our playgrounds feature a lot of concrete, cement in some form or another. There is a piece at Playscapes, a wonderful piece, that uses a piece of playground equipment that he created called play cubes. So it's an arrangement of cubes in a kind of pyramidal shape and then one in more of an S shape. And those are combined together into something that looks a little bit like the ruin of a Mayan temple that you can climb up on and jump off of. So I, you know, I think Noguchi for sure was interested in the architectural environment. And he was interested in very simple shapes because Simple shapes are the ones that kids can do the most with in their imaginations. It's kind of the old joke. Noguchi was very good at making sculpture and playground equipment. That is kind of like the equivalent of, you know, you, you get the like the super fancy battery operated whiz bang kind of toy for your child for Christmas. And they, they get it. They unwrap the present. There it is. They somehow, you know, it takes 20 minutes, but they get it out of the box. They play with it for two minutes and are bored, and then pick up the box that it came in and end up spending two days playing with the box instead of the toy. <laughs> Noguchi is very, very good at making the box. So a lot of the equipment is, is simple. 
because again, then it, it doesn't over-program what should be done with it. Noguchi really thought of playgrounds the way that he thought about nature. You know, the genius of a forest or the ocean is that it doesn't come with operating instructions, whereas a lot of playground equipment was designed by grown-ups who were trying to force or encourage children to learn one specific thing. So, you know, kind of the old model that Noguchi was working against was that model of like military training equipment monkey bars and things where you were performing a repetitive activity over and over and over again to physically internalize it. Um, Noguchi didn't think that playgrounds should be based on that model. He was interested in a, what he thought of as a non-directive model, more like nature. So here are a whole bunch of things that can be used a whole bunch of different ways. Have fun, go crazy. So he really had a theory of play in mind. What kind of exploration did he hope to encourage in kids who would interact with them? Yeah, that's a, it's a great point. I think he really, it, it was quite specific in its openness. So he, what Noguchi was interested in was empirical experience. One of the most wonderful things about him is that Noguchi didn't judge or create any kind of hierarchy in his mind, of different kinds of intelligence. We learn a lot of different ways. Some of us are more oral, some are more visual, some are more physical, we know that now. And But there are also a lot of kinds of functional intelligence. Some people are very physically intelligent, some of us are not. Some of us are you know, sort of biased towards uh, spoken. You know, we, we tend to equate intelligence with ability or facility with the language. But there, there are a lot of people who have a different kind of intelligence. Noguchi was interested in fostering physical intelligence. So, you know, it's hard for us uh, grown-ups listening to this to think back to what it was like to spend a lot of time on a swing. But a swing is basically like doing math and physics problems with your body. You know, you're, you're learning how the physical universe works. You're learning the laws of nature. You're just doing it through the body. And pendulum action is a totally fascinating thing. And, and it's something that you learn, but you learn it physically and intuitively rather than in, in a book, at least when you're five or six or seven. You know, the, the way that a pendulum works, no matter how wide the swing of the pendulum for a given length, the speed with which it crosses the center point is always the same. So if you're swinging, you know, 10 feet back and 10 feet forward, or you're just swinging a foot back and a foot forward, the length of the swing is always exactly the same amount of time. It's a, it's a very, very interesting thing. It's totally counterintuitive. But you actually learn that with your body, just the same way on a spiral slide, for example, you're learning about centripetal force, right? You're learning when your body is pressed against the outside of the spiral, that the force wants to send your body shooting out. And the only thing preventing it is the wall of that slide and merry-go-rounds. And if you think about kind of those typical pieces of playground equipment, they, they are all ways to, again, learn something physically. Um, and of course, you can later put mathematics to all of that in physics and learn why, you know, the whys and the, the wherefores. But it's neat that playgrounds can be designed in a way that allows children to learn it intuitively. This is fascinating, Taken. Did Noguchi show interest in interactive 
and kinetic art installation in other areas of his work? That's really a fascinating question. The really short answer is 100% yes and no at the same time. He didn't make kinetic art of the sort that that you would think of from the 60s and, and early 70s, especially. He didn't make things that move like a George Rickey, but he would say that all of his sculpture is kinetic in the sense that it has it has programming built into it that shapes your your physical experience of it. So a lot of his sculpture is designed to make you move. There's a great example at the center of our garden here in Long Island City called Illusion of the Fifth Stone, which is a piece that's based on an idea that comes from Japanese garden design called Hide and Reveal, which is basically the idea is that you can make a very small space seem huge by making sure that you're always hiding something. If you can't see everything all at once, then your brain is always extending the space out into the distance to account for the possibilities of what might be there. So Noguchi made a single big stone piece that sometimes looks like it's made out of three stones, sometimes four stones, and sometimes five stones. And you can just circle it forever because your brain never fully solves it, trying to see like, how does this rock connect to that rock? Is that the same rock? Is that a different rock? Is that one on top of that one or behind that one? So it's a piece that is designed to move you around. That's his version of kinetic. Oh, wow. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the curator of the Noguchi Museum in New York, Dakin Hart. We've been discussing Noguchi's artistic playground at Piedmont Park, Playscapes. I read that Playscapes was restored pro bono on its 20th anniversary in 1996. What improvements were made? Yeah, it's actually been uh, renewed, uh, restored a couple of times. Most recently was in the 2000s. And, and again, uh, with, with funding from Herman Miller and the city, I, I know was very grateful, and we are too, for Herman Miller's commitment to keeping it in good shape. The, the changes that have been made are mostly to account for some of the problematic uses of some of the equipment. So like a, a door was added to the spiral slide so that people couldn't kind of camp out on the interior of it. And also play equipment standards have changed enormously over time. Safety standards. You know, there aren't any laws per se that constrain different kinds of equipment and what it can do. But the Consumer Product Safety Commission has a very long document that contains standards of safety. And so like, for example, just to go back to swings, swings now have a maximum length. Um, You probably remember, I certainly remember the swings that I got, I'm 50 years old, the swings that I grew up on were really, really long. And the big thing was trying to see if, you know, you could flip the whole thing over (laughs) and go all the way around. But it's kind of shocking, you know, how big an arc you could describe. I think some of those were 10 or 12 feet long, the chains on those swings. Um, Now the maximum length is eight feet because 
you want um, children on them to be able to develop only a sort of to a maximum amount of momentum because uh, children don't actually get hurt very often falling off swings. The children who get hurt are the ones who get hit, who are on the ground, who get hit by children who are swinging, Um, which is also why, for example, there are no more wooden swing seats. All swing seats now, this drives kids crazy because, of course, what they want to do is to throw the swing seat as hard as they can to try to flip the swing over the bars. But now they're all floppy and they tend to be quite lightweight because, again, you don't want something that can swing into another child and hurt the child. Important safety measures. Yeah. You mentioned Herman Miller and that style of mid-century furniture, wood and glass. Many associate Noguchi with that celebrated style of glass and wood furniture he designed. Would you tell us a bit more about the life of the artist? Absolutely. He had a really amazing, complicated American life. Noguchi was born in Los Angeles. His mother was a a white Irish-American girl from Brooklyn. His father was a traveling sort of itinerant Japanese poet. They met in New York City. They worked together. His mom answered an ad in the paper for an editor. Fell in love, had Noguchi. Um, Again, he was born in Los Angeles. By that time, his father had left. He wasn't even named until he was two and a half years old. His mother took him to Japan to find his father. She ended up spending more than a decade there. Noguchi went to elementary school in Japan. That's where he actually originally started thinking about playgrounds. Um, There really weren't any playgrounds in Japan at the time. And he just remembered these kind of vast open wastes of, you know, what we can all remember of uh, a field of grass with no grass just sort of rocks and dirt and, you know, not a very welcoming place to play. He moved back to the United States to go to high school. His mom sent him to a learn by doing school and of all places, rural Indiana. <laughs> so he, he also thought of himself his whole life as a Hoosier, but a biracial Hoosier, which, you know, was not easy in the teens and 20s. Um, the really extraordinary thing about Noguchi is he lived an entire life in between He never, as he said, felt fully at home anywhere. And so he made himself at home everywhere. He really thought of himself as a citizen of the planet. He was a great friend of Buckminster Fuller's. They met really young in their 20s, um, in the 1920s. And Bucky had this idea about Spaceship Earth. And Noguchi really thought of himself as a citizen of Spaceship Earth and was interested in finding ways to universalize across cultural experiences, across traditional cultures from the whole planet. He was very good at finding places where you have overlap. Anything that appeared, for example, like stack pyramids are a great example. You find pyramids everywhere. People have made them in, on, on every continent where mankind has been, barring Antarctica, there are pyramids. So that's part of why he was interested in pyramids, because it seemed to be a kind of universal human solution to the desire to climb up closer to the sky and to emulate mountains. And he did a lot of mountain emulating in his life. So he worked in New York. He had a practice working in Italy. 
also established a home and a studio in Japan, traveled very extensively his entire life, but particularly in the 50s. In 1960, actually, Bucky Fuller wrote an essay in which he said that he believed that Noguchi was the best traveled artist in the history of mankind. Now, Bucky was also full of hyperbole, so <laughs> that's pretty hyperbolic, but it may, it's possible that it was true in 1960. And Noguchi, the other thing about him is that he never really subjected himself to other people's judgments. He hated labels. He hated categories. He didn't believe in the balkanization of creativity into one category or another. That's why he was as interested in and as proud of his Herman Miller coffee table, which bears a striking relationship to sculpture that he was making at the time. The interesting thing with Noguchi is that very often the sculptural invention comes out of design rather than the other way around. Art historians would be much happier if you said, here's this brilliant, unique piece of sculpture, and then it begot a table, and it begot a set designed for Martha Graham, and it begot all these other things. But in truth, for Noguchi, it almost always went the other way around. He took some idea that he had developed in one design field or another, and then imported it into sculpture, which was a really effective strategy for him. The Noguchi Museum in New York opened three years before the artist's death in 1988. Would you tell us about your work at the Noguchi Foundation and Museum? It's really a magical place because Noguchi, it's still the only museum in the United States founded by an artist to show their own work. So we, we think of it as, and he treated it as a total work of art. It's an environment in which an artist who was interested most of all in environments got to express his ideas. And I always joke that it's sort of like his flag on the moon because he established it as a reference point. He wanted it to be a kind of a movable object in the stream of history to say, this is what I believe in. This is what I care about. And anybody who's interested can come see it and not see it really so much as experience it. Our museum is really a lot more like Central Park or Piedmont Park than it is like the High Museum of Art or the Museum of Modern Art. It's a place that you come and experience as opposed to sort of being exhausted by the demands of quote unquote learning. And it is the uh, sort of home base for Noguchi worldwide. So everything that Noguchi left when he died is at our museum. It's part of the Asami Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum. So we're also the home of the catalog Raisonne, which is the attempt to document everything Noguchi ever made, as well as the archives that Noguchi left. That's something like half a million pages of photographs and documents. And those are all, we've made those 100% accessible online in a searchable database. So anybody on the planet with access to the internet has as good access to the basic Noguchi resource material as we do at the museum on site. And that's thanks to a, a foundation grant from the Luce Foundation um, with which we were able to digitize and catalog everything. And then we have everything Noguchi left. So we, we have things like, we have his members only jacket from the seventies. <laughs> we have we have a very now crunchy slip and slide that he owned. We have broken VCRs, Betamax and Sony uh, and VHS. 
we have his furniture and we still in the kitchen in the museum we still eat off of some of his dishes oh my. it's an amazing place it's very we we focus on being direct and intimate and personal um there are no labels for example on the wall of our museum it really privileges the object and everybody's experience of the object what about in the garden are there any plaques or descriptions? There aren't. Um, we have walking guides, and then we have a lot of electronic information available um, that we make easy to get to. But the garden, which is a little, it's a little miracle, honestly, in, in New York City, Noguchi called it an oasis on the edge of a black hole, the black hole being Manhattan and most of New York City. It's only about two thirds of an acre. But when you're there, the world just drops away. It is a perfect little chunk of nature. Deacon Hart, curator of the Noguchi Museum and Foundation in New York, the designer and sculptor's only playground in the United States is Playscapes, located on the western edge of Piedmont Park. More information is on our website, at wabe.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978 as host of both blues classics and jazz classics. H educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. I want to share with you right now some very interesting thoughts, afterthoughts, on a young lady by the name of Melba Liston. Now, Melba Liston was a great trombone player in jazz. She was also a fantastic arranger and composer for bands such as John Burke Gillespie, better known as Dizzy, or, or Edward Kennedy Ellington, better known as Duke Ellington. She was the only female artist in a lot of those bands when she performed who first came to prominence with a group called the Sweethearts of Rhythm, which was an all-woman's band back in the 1920s and 30s, pre-war band. She also was outstanding as a writer with those bands, and she went to high school, believe it or not, and played with Dexter Gordon. Yes, she did. She played trombone, obviously. He played tenor sax. Of course, they played other instruments also, but those were the dominant instruments. She was with us for a while and made an impact with the uh, musical world, especially with band leaders. Her works are known, but she doesn't get the credit for the works that she's performed and composed on. People like Basie and Ellington did her work. They gave her credit, but it was never really notarized, so to speak, where people knew who she was. But we're trying to let you know who she was and is now. Passed away at 74 years old, but left a legacy of great recordings and an impact on the jazz community, particularly among men. Tell you what, right now, here she is with the Quincy Jones Band to give us an example of how she can arrange and play her horn. Here she is with Quincy Jones' aggregation doing My Reverie, Melba Liston on trombone.
WABE's H. Johnson and our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today, he featured trombonist Melba Liston. You can hear the full-length version of My Reverie on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Catch H's blues classic show tonight and every Friday night beginning at 10, and do return for jazz classics every Saturday night beginning at 8, right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., the host of Homegrown, Jamila Norman, tells us about her journey from urban farmer to TV star. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.